Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Well, we come to this point in Romans chapter 4 where many scholars believe this is sort of the end of the first act, if you will. From the beginning of Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 4, and maybe the beginning of Romans 5 next week, uh, this has been that first systematic uh, understanding of the gospel. As Paul has expounded what the gospel is, what the good news means, that it's about Jesus, it's through his resurrection, that we cannot be good enough to merit grace from God, but that God justifies, remember that word, he makes us right through faith in Christ alone. So we come to that final conclusion last week at the end of Romans chapter 3, that famous section about being justified by faith alone. And then we come to Romans 4, which is sort of of like a parenthetical illustration at the end of that section where Paul says, if you want a really great example of justification by faith, he takes Romans chapter 4 and says, this is a wonderful, fine example in the person of Abraham of what justification by faith, what the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith is all about. And I've entitled today's sermon, The Promise of God. We're able to keep rolling with those titles, so we're going to keep rolling with them today, The Promise of God. When I was in uh, Tennessee with our family visiting um, Jessica's parents, and we went to see my parents in North Carolina, but specifically there in Tennessee, Uh, there are fireflies. I didn't uh, ever understand growing up in North Carolina that that fireflies weren't just everywhere. When we moved to to Florida, there there weren't fireflies there for some reason. Then, of course, here, I've never seen any here in my two and a half years. So uh, fireflies, or if you're from the south, you call them lightning bugs. Uh, That's what we saw. And, and, And Anna's fascinated, Lily's fascinated by the lightning bugs. And so um, that first night we were there in Tennessee, or maybe it's when we came back through, we were going to go catch fireflies one night. Wonderful thing to do on a summer night in the south. You go catch some fireflies. You put them in a jar. Uh, most of the time they die. But I made Anna let them go. I made Anna, we were all, you know, green about it. We let them go and let them fly back to their mommies and daddies or whatever. So we had the fireflies, and, and we weren't catching any. Because the first night we tried, it was, it was dark outside. It was getting darker. You could see the light of the firefly. But once it went out, you couldn't see them to actually go grab them. So you got to get them right at dusk when you can see the light and go grab them. You can still see them flying around. And so Anna was disappointed that first night that we didn't catch any. And I told her, okay, tomorrow night we will come out here earlier. And Daddy promises we will catch a firefly. And she stuck her little pinky up at me and I stuck my pinky down and said, I promise. And as soon as I did it, I understood the weight of what just took place between me and my daughter. So the next night, about 7 p.m., before the sun was even down, I was out there, you can ask Jessica, standing, just staring into the, into the field, down at the trees. I was like, the, the first firefly I see, I'm going after it because I'm going to get that one firefly for my daughter because what daddy 
promised. And we got like six of them that night. So promise fulfilled. I love my daughter. I make promises. I got to keep those promises. How much more so does our Father, God, make promises? And how much more capable is he of keeping those promises? And today we're going to see such a promise and what it means to be justified by faith in those promises. Well, last week, if you look back at the end of chapter 3, we looked at justification by faith. And if we're not careful, we might come to think that we are justified not just through our faith, but by our faith, as if our faith were the grounds of our justification. So someone might say, why are you saved? And we might say, well, because I believed. And we must certainly believe, and we are certainly justified by faith and through faith, but that faith in and of ourselves is not the grounds of our justification. It's not the cause of it. The cause and the grounds and the source of our justification with God is God himself, namely the promises of God. At the core of salvation in the New Testament is a loving father who makes and keeps his promises. And at the core of what it means to be a believer and to receive those promises is to believe and to trust in those promises, namely in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves us. And so today, Paul points us to the father of Israel, the father of the Jews, Abraham. He says, if you want a pristine example of justification by faith in the promises of God, look no further than to your own patriarch, to the Jewish audience, your own patriarch, Abraham. So let's begin reading in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, our scripture from this morning, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the, uh, heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. 
But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope that he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead the Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's go to square one this morning in verses one through eight and see what it means to be counted as righteous. Counted as righteous. Some think that salvation is only the forgiveness of sins. That salvation, being saved, being a Christian, only or merely means that our sins are forgiven, our sins are washed away, and we don't have to pay for those sins. And that is certainly part of the equation. Look back at chapter 3 again. Chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, and let's see what, what Paul said there. We are justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we're justified whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Forgiveness of sins and the removal of sin is a big part of salvation. But it is not the only part of salvation. Salvation is more than the taking away of sins. What did Paul say there? That we are justified. Jesus bears the penalty for our sin. Absolutely. Our sins are removed. Absolutely. What does he say there in chapter 3, verse 24? That we are justified. Not just forgiven, but that we are justified. Jesus bearing the penalty while we receive his righteousness. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as I quoted from that uh, first century epistle or second century epistle last week, oh, sweet exchange, that in the very nature of salvation is not just our acquittal, and our forgiveness of sins, but that we also receive in this exchange the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. And so if you look at it as an equation and you ask, well, what do I bring into this? Or what does someone as holy and revered as Abraham, what did he bring into that equation? Well, if you look at the exchange, Jesus takes my sin, I receive his righteousness. You can say, I bring nothing into this. Abraham brought nothing into this except sin. 
There's no contribution made on my part for my salvation. There's no contribution made on Abraham's part wherein he was counted righteous. Merely I brought God my sin. Abraham had nothing to offer but sin. And this would have been a shock to many of Paul's hearers then. Maybe it's a shock to you today. That Abraham did not stand before God on his own merits and receive some sort of reward for being such a good person. If we're not careful, that's how we can hear the Bible stories, isn't it, sometimes? Here's Moses. Moses was great. Be like Moses, and God will bless you. Here's Daniel. Daniel was great. Be like Daniel, and God will bless you. Here's Abraham. Abraham was holy. Be like Abraham, and God will bless you. If you know the stories of Daniel or Moses or Noah or Abraham or any other Old Testament or biblical figure or any other human being, you know that is not the case. Look at them. Be like them. That's not the story the Bible gives us. It shows us their flaws. It shows us their sins. It shows us Abraham's sin as we read through it. So if we think the lesson is be good to be saved, we've missed the point. Back in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul already told us no one is good, no one is righteous, no, not one. And then he comes in verse 23 and he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does that mean Moses? Yes. Does that mean David? Yes. Noah? Abraham? Yes. So they did nothing to merit God's favor? There was was nothing in Abraham that made God look down on him and choose him because of Abraham. Look at verses 1 and 2 here in our text today. What shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. If this was about Abraham's good works, and this was about Abraham's righteousness that somehow turned God's attention to him and caused God to do something for him as a reward for his good works, Paul says, we've lost the whole thing altogether because who needs God's grace? Who needs God's promises? Who needs faith? If we can do this on our own, if Abraham just mustered up enough righteousness and enough faith and enough good works to merit this for himself, Paul says, well, there it is. He has something to boast about if it's from him. But the end of verse 2 makes sure we understand, but not before God. And then verse 3, Paul asks the all-important question, what does the Bible say? What do the scriptures say, verse 3? Well, they say... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. You see this? So God said something to Abraham, and Abraham heard it, and he believed it. In this case, God made a promise to Abraham that Abraham heard, and Abraham believed And you say, well, what was that promise? Well, just the Abrahamic covenant of the Old Testament that you can find in Genesis 12, reiterated in Genesis 15, reiterated in Genesis 17. The Abrahamic covenant. Let's just read um, from Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses. It'll be on the screen for you. Genesis 12, the first three verses. This is the, the essence of God's covenant with Abraham. This is the promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is the essence of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, go to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation, and your offspring will be a blessing to all the families or all the other nations on the earth. So Abraham hears that promise. And later he believes that promise, namely in Genesis 15, 6. That's what Paul is quoting here. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the promise of God. And it says it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that phrase there, both in Genesis 15, 6, and then again there in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, is key to our understanding of the gospel. Counted as righteous. It could have been a financial term. It could have been a term of appraisal or something that is due someone for work or something that is merely granted to someone. But I want us to latch on to another key word that's associated with this phrase counted, and that's the word impute. The word impute or imputation. It means to put on or to credit to one's account. If you read through the prophets in the Old Testament very long, you'll hear some of the negative connotations of this. That God was counting their sins against them. Or God was counting their iniquities against them. What does that mean? Well, he was crediting in a bad way their judgment and wrath for their sin to their account. Their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. Their unrepentant, hard hearts. God was counting those things to their account. They were storing up judgment for themselves. But it could also be good. As you would store up treasure for yourself in heaven. You're putting something to your account. You're crediting something there. So in this case, it's good news. That when Abraham believed God, God imputed or counted to him nothing less than his own righteousness. Abraham believed God and God credited him with his own righteousness. But it wasn't because of Abraham. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Again, this wasn't something that Abraham did and earned from God. That would be wages, right? If this was about God rewarding Abraham for Abraham just being a spectacular person, which he wasn't, if it was about that, then it would just have been wages. It would have been what he's due. And Paul says that's not what this is at all. It comes back and reminds us this is a gift given by grace. Remember, this is a gift gift, absolutely free, undeserved, unearned gift, not wages, but a gift of God's grace. That's why he says in verse five, not wages for works done, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you want wages, if you want what's due, God, look at all this stuff I'm doing. Shouldn't that be enough to merit heaven? 
Look at all this service. Look at all this work. Look at all these church hours. Look at the teaching at VBS and dealing with nasty, sweaty kids all week. Look, look at this and say, isn't that enough, God, to get me into heaven? And God would say, yeah, if it was up to wages, if it was what you were due. But what does Paul say the wages of sin is? Uh, Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he comes back in Romans 6, 23 and says, the wages of that sin is what? Death. So there's your wages. All have sinned and the wages of sin for each one of us is death. But we do not want wages from God. Abraham was not receiving his due from God in the giving of this promise. Back in chapter 3, verse 24, we see what this is. We are justified by his grace as a gift. That is what God extends in his promise of salvation. He extends a gift. Not because of our works or our merits, Not because of our righteousness, because we have none, but because of his grace alone. Abraham did good things. Abraham believed God. He did do righteous things. He cared for Lot. He rescued Lot. He prayed for Lot. We see Abraham do good things, but Abraham also did bad things. Abraham also did stupid things. In fact, he did stupid things repeatedly. In Genesis 15, before we even come to this part where God counted his faith to him as righteousness, Abraham had been complaining to God. He had been questioning God. God, you told me a son was on the way. You made this promise. I believe you, but I'm not seeing how that's going to happen here. And in Abraham's own stupid way of trying to make things happen for himself, he takes Hagar, there's Ishmael. He's already sold Sarah to pagan people like two times. He's done a lot of deceiving. He's involved in warfare. And so if we come away from this thinking that we should look to Abraham, we've missed the point. We do not look to Abraham to see God's promise as a reward. We look to Abraham to see God's promise given as undeserved favor. Because in this transaction between God and Abraham, we see a sinner, a former idolater, a deceiver, an adulterer. And in this transaction, we see God counting to this sinning, idolatrous, adulterous, pagan, His very own righteousness. Not rewarded for his goodness. Not recognized for his righteousness, but given God's righteousness. And Abraham received that simply by believing in the promise of God. Verse 5 tells us who we should look to, not Abraham, but, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Not Abraham, but him who justifies the ungodly. And when you look to him who justifies the ungodly, when you come to him in faith and you receive his promises, you too are counted as righteous before him. 
Earlier I said it's not just the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is not just being forgiven of sins, though it certainly includes that. Praise the Lord, it includes that. But what does the psalmist say here? And Paul quotes it in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. Yes, forgiveness of sins is a wonderful blessing of salvation. Paul wants us to remember that. Those sins will not be counted against us. But look, if it's just that, if it's just the forgiveness of sins... If it's just blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not count his iniquity, if it's just that, then all you have at the end of that equation is a zero balance. And as wonderful as that is, and as great as it is that your debt has been erased and you don't owe the penalty for it anymore, it doesn't stop there. You don't just receive the zero balance of your sins being forgiven. But when you come to Christ in faith, you receive an infinite credit in that you are counted righteous in the very sight of God. So it's not just that God brings you to ground zero, neutral territory. Now good luck on keeping it that way. No, he brings you out of the debt you owe and he gives you the infinite credit of the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the great exchange of salvation. I bring nothing into this but my sin. God removes my sin and he gives me what he requires of me, namely his perfect righteousness through faith in Christ that is counted to me put into my account by simple faith in Christ that is the good news of the gospel Paul goes on and he says now let's consider the timing it is a matter of timing for those who emphasized circumcision I know that's weird for us in the 21st century church to to talk about circumcision. Uh, There was a passage in Leviticus uh, down on Wednesday nights in which I said, if you're familiar with the the show um, Impractical Jokers, is that the name of it, Impractical Jokers? And, you know, they, 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 they have these little pieces in their ear, and it's just these four goofy guys that go out into public situations in the mall or park or library. And the guys in the studio are telling them things to do. And the more dares that they can complete, the more, I don't know, prizes they win. I don't know how it works. So I said, maybe that one time in Leviticus downstairs, I'm not going to tell you the word. But I said, this seems like an Impractical Jokers episode where let's see how many times I can say this word in a church setting before it becomes awkward. I think we might have thought that in verses 9 through 12 with the word circumcision. And not being familiar with Judaism and first century Judaism, uh, that might have been uncomfortable for many of us to hear the word circumcision so many times in such short verses. But there were Jews and there were Judaizers even within the church who still placed a very heavy emphasis on the Old Covenant, Old Testament sign of circumcision. And Paul says, okay, if we want to talk about circumcision, for you who want to emphasize that, let's think about the order of this. For Abraham, look at verse 9. Is this blessing only then for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. You see Paul's argument? If you who say that God grants righteousness by obeying the law, 
For you who say that God grants righteousness through being circumcised and being of the Jewish nationality or keeping the old covenant laws, for you who say that, let's just think about Abraham. When was Abraham declared righteous? Was it before or after he was circumcised? Simple reading of the text says it was well before he was circumcised that God counted righteousness to him. It was before. So if righteousness is a reward... For our outwardly fleshly work, circumcision or whatever you want to put in the blank there, if righteousness is a reward that God gives us, if salvation is a reward that he gives us for something we do, what do we do with this? Because Abraham was counted as righteous before he ever received the initial sign of the covenant. And I want to remind you that it's not until Moses that we have the law even revealed to God's people. So if circumcision itself is not factored into Abraham's justification, if Abraham's works and Abraham's righteousness and Abraham's obedience are not counted into the equation, what happens to those who want to boast in their works? Paul says, not before God. No outward work is factored in. For Abraham, listen, no outward work is factored in to your salvation for you either. Remember, these are not wages that you receive as a due for your work. This is a gift to be received by God's grace. And so his Jewish hearers, maybe us today, would look at that and say, well, so, so the covenant of circumcision meant nothing? You know, the covenant you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that the, the, the demand of circumcision that you made on the nation of Israel, it meant nothing. Well, of course it meant something. Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circum- circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Yes, circumcision meant something. But it was not the end in itself. It was what Paul says in verse 11. It was a sign of the promise. You see, some in Rome, and certainly some at the church of Galatia, we could read about that, emphasized circumcision as the means by which you received righteousness from God. In other words, you could not be saved apart from circumcision, and circumcision in the old covenant law was how you were saved, according to some. And so Paul just says, how do we explain Abraham? Justified before circumcision, and that circumcision being a sign of the faith he had. I was talking to our kids today in the baptism class for a couple of our young kids, and I always like to talk about signs. I said, let's say you're going with your family to Disney World. Everybody loves Disney World, right? I do. And you pull up to Disney World, and, and there's the big sign there on the interstate, the big arch that you drive under that says, welcome to the Walt Disney World Resort. You don't, you don't actually go to a theme park. You don't go to a water park. You don't go to a hotel or anything else. You get out of your car there with your family. You stop at the big sign. You take a picture. And you get back in the car and go home. Right? You've not been to Disney World. You've seen the sign. You took a picture with the sign. But you haven't seen the substance of Disney World. Right? 
The same is true for those who emphasize circumcision and obedience to the law as the means of salvation. Paul says, yes, those things are important. Those were important to God's people, but they just pointed to the substance. You don't stop and take pictures with the sign as if it were the destination. You must move on to the destination. And Paul says that sign of circumcision, as important as it was, was only pointing to the promise that had already been received in faith. One of the commentaries I studied this week said, uh, Dan Doriani said, The seal followed the inauguration of the covenant, but it was not the essence of the covenant itself. It did not make Abraham righteous, but it sealed that righteousness and the promise that God had made. It was a sign and a proof of the promise God had made. And it was a justification, if you will, of Abraham's justification by faith. The point being, Paul says, not circumcision itself, but what it pointed to. Look there at uh, verse 11 again. It was a sign, it was a seal. Look at the last part of verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. This is what it really means to be God's people, Paul says. To believe the promises of God. To trust God just as Abraham did. And that promise is offered not just to the circumcised in the Old Testament, Not just to the circumcised of Paul's day, but to all of us, circumcised or not, children of Abraham. How many of you when you were a child sang in Sunday school or children's church, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. What's the next part? I am one of them and so are you. So let's just sing this song, right arm, left arm, head nod, whatever it was, sit down, fall down, whatever the things we added to it at the end, all three, I'll do all all the things. But there's a lot of truth in that silly little kid song, isn't there? Father Abraham had many sons. I, through faith in Christ, because that, that was always the parentheses right in your mind. I know it was. I, through faith in Christ, am one of them, and so are you. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. It is those who have faith that are the children of Abraham. It has nothing to do with nationality. Had nothing to do with ethnicity. Had nothing to do with circumcision or uncircumcision. What did it have to do with? Faith in the promises of God. And through faith in Christ today, you can be a child of the promise of God. This is a universal thing. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, what was the last part of God's promise to Abraham? And I will make you a blessing to all. All the families, all the peoples, all the nations of the earth. Circumcision pointed to this promise. The righteousness of God for all who believe in the promises of God. The timing of this shows us that it's not that works don't matter. Works do matter. Obedience to God does matter. But we must understand the timing. Good works do not bring us into salvation, but good works must flow from salvation. 
We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, don't we? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's where most of our memory verses ended, isn't it? But what about verse 10? Ephesians 2, 10. Having been saved by grace through faith alone, not because of works, now do good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved to do good works. And obedience will necessarily follow. Circumcision followed Abraham's faith. We come to the waters of baptism following coming to Christ in faith. We come to the Lord's Supper not to receive faith, but because of our faith in Christ. Any act of obedience that we do flows from our salvation. It is not putting coins in the coffers of our salvation. These aren't credits being given. These aren't merits being given or accrued, but they're flowing from who we are in Christ. John Piper probably said it the best I've ever heard, that good works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Good works are the fruit of our salvation, not the root of our salvation. So it was with Abraham, and so it is with us. God says it's not as if the works don't matter. They just can't save you. You can't do enough of them to be saved. I give you salvation. I call you my own. I forgive your sins. I give you my righteousness. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, live like it. Abraham did follow that example. I mean, we must follow that example as well. But we have to get the timing right. Salvation depends on getting the timing right. That good works do not bring us to salvation, but they follow salvation. Next, we see this promise is about faith. Not the law, but faith. Paul continues here to contrast faith and the law and the gospel, salvation and justification, and what it means to belong to God in light of all these things like the law and obedience to the law. Look what he says in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it, the adherence of the law, if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You see what Paul says? These promises from God, this promise from God to Abraham did not come through the law. Really, chronologically speaking again, there is no law yet. There is no Moses yet, so it can't be that. It comes, Paul says in verse 13, by the righteousness of faith. Not by anything in Abraham, but by everything that has been given to Abraham by God. And then Paul says in verse 14, look, if it was about obedience to the law then what need have we of promises or faith? In other words, if, if it's realistic that we could do this by our own obedience and our own righteousness and our own works, Paul says, well, the promises of God aren't needed. The good news of the gospel isn't needed if it's up to us. If it's up to Abraham, why did God have to make him promises? Paul says if it was up to the law, the promise would be null and void. 
Paul says in verse 15, remember though, the law does bring a promise. It's just not the promise of salvation. It's the promise of God's wrath. And that in the preaching of the law, sin is revealed. It shows us our need of salvation, but it cannot deliver salvation. That's why he says in verse 16, we need a better promise based on faith. That is why it depends, verse 16, on faith, in order that the promise might rest on grace. It is not our works. It is not our righteousness. It is purely the gift of God received by faith in Jesus Christ. Consider the nature then next of Abraham's faith. Back in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham and Sarah have now waited almost 20 years for a child. Abraham is almost 100 years old. Sarah is about 90 years old. And in Genesis 17, 17, when God comes and reiterates the promise he's been making repeatedly now by this point, and there's been no child, no child of Abraham and Sarah, that is. God has been making this promise. Abraham laughs at God. God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham laughs at him, questioning God's very promise. But I want you to see what God says there. In Genesis 17, 17, he says to Abraham, I have made you, I'm sorry, Genesis 17, 5, I have made you the father of many nations. And Paul quotes that here in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations. Do you see anything interesting about the the language God uses? There's no child yet. Abraham is still waiting. Sarah's still waiting. When God makes this promise to Sarah, she laughs. When he makes the promise to Abraham, he laughs. He questions. He complains. He doesn't know how this is going to happen. But do you hear how God says it both in Genesis 17.5 and Romans 4.17? What does he say? I have made you the father of many nations. The point for Abraham, the point for us, is not to look at Abraham's faith as if it's worth noting. But God's power. And Paul says here in Romans 4, the second part of verse 17, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, watch this, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God says, I have every right to speak in past tense as if it is already done because I have the power to make it so. So I can say to you, Abraham, without a child, without an heir, still waiting on the promise, I have made you the father of many nations as if it had already been accomplished. God calls into existence the things that do not yet exist. And it is that power and that promise to which Abraham clings. Look at verse 18. In hope then, knowing that God had the power to do this, in hope. Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Underline this, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham's faith was weak. It was trembling. It was imperfect. Nevertheless, he hoped against hope. He knew what it looked like. He knew he was 100 years old. 
He knew Sarah was 90 years old. He knew the possibility and the probability of this happen. But what did he say? He knew what he had been told. He knew the promise that God had made. And so in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. When he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. His faith did not weaken. It did not waver. It might have stumbled. It might have trembled. It might have been shaky. It might have questioned. It might have doubted, but that's different than his faith wavering. And without being too crass in a room like this this morning, how do we know that Abraham still had faith in God's promises? Because he kept clearly pursuing his relationship with Sarah. Knowing his body, knowing her body, he kept obeying God and trusting in God's promise for what God had said. There's no doubt there. Again, it was not the works that produced the faith. It was the faith in God's promises that produced the works. And in verse 20 through 21, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He did not, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There, there is the strength of Abraham's faith. Not Abraham's strength to obey. Not Abraham's strength to produce this promise. But what did it say in verse 21? Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Paul says in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The last point here this morning is that this is about you. This is your story. Abraham was an example that Paul used, a a big example Father Abraham of Israel. The nationality, the religion, all of it. Abraham, the patriarch. If there was an example to point to, it was him. But it's for all of us too. Look at what Paul says in verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Abraham was just like you and me, fallen Sinful, deserving of God's wrath. And if he would have been given his due wages, it would have been death and hell like the rest of us. But he was presented with a gift. A gift of God's grace in this promise that he made. To which Abraham responded by receiving that with the open hands of faith. And Paul says, look, this was written not for Abraham's sake. This was written for your sake. So that you too might know what it means to be counted as righteous before God. If you're here today in any kind of despair, pain, your circumstances don't really reflect anything good about the supposed promises of God in your life. Maybe your faith is trembling and weak and maybe you have been tempted to doubt God's promises. Maybe you don't know God's promises. You say, what, what does it even mean to me? You're looking at your life and your situation, and you might ask this morning, what promise is there for me? You might find yourself this morning hoping against hope, shaky, trembling, doubting. 
This morning I want you with Paul to consider the faith of Abraham. Not that Abraham was the object. But what did he say back in chapter 4 verse 12? That we follow in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. Not in how good and how faithful Abraham was. But what Paul said in verse 21. Faith in what God was able to do according to his promise. And you will say this morning, and you'll rightly say, but I don't have a promise like that. God didn't, God didn't promise me a, a promised land or a nation or offspring or all these things. So, so what promise is there for me? Yes, Abraham and the nation of Israel had specific promises then and there. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, God made a promise to Abram about a land and a country and a nation, and he believed him by faith, that Sarah believed by faith. But not even that was the true substance of the promise. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see what the author of Hebrews said? God made promises to Abraham. Absolutely. He believed them. He received them. He made promises to Sarah. He made promises to the patriarchs, to the nation of Israel. And they received them by faith. But those promises were just small promises that pointed to the bigger promise, the author of Hebrews says, that is out of this world. A nation and a country and a land not built by men, but built by God. It was bigger and better than they ever imagined it. And Paul says the exact same thing here in Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Look at what he says. But ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in what? What promise do we have? In him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Folks, believers, here is the substance of God's promise, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, rooted in the power of his resurrection. As Paul said from the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 4, raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, revealed in that great exchange that he says here, he was delivered up for our trespasses that we might receive his justification And you would think this morning, I don't have a promise from God. Because your promise might not be the same as Abraham or Moses or Noah or the Old Testament patriarchs. No, you have a promise from God because you have the promise from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 tells us what that promise is. The yes and the amen of every single one of God's promises is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Believer You have this rock and this foundation, no matter your circumstances, no matter your suffering, no matter your problems and your trials, all of God's promises are manifested in this promised one, Jesus Christ. Believers, in your temptation, in your sin, in your failures, in your growth, it's all rooted in him. And it's his grace that will keep you to the end. 
as with Abraham, as with Abraham, you believer, God's promise to you is as good as done. That's why Paul in Romans 8 verse 30, speaking in past tense, that you who have been justified, it's as if you had already been glorified. Because you're so great, because you're so righteous, because of your works? No, because God is faithful to finish the work he started in you. Tim Keller said, the life of faith is not the perfect life, but it is the life which clings on to the promise that God will do what he said he will do. I want to say a special word to unbelievers this morning. Unbelievers here today, the promise is for you too. You've, you've heard the word of God. As Abraham, you heard what has been said. You've heard the promise of the gospel, of this Savior who took your sins and who offers you his righteousness. If you will just receive it by faith, you've heard the promise. Now, will you receive that promise in faith? Here is a father who has made a promise. Here is a father who can keep his promises. I love what Jesus said to his hearers in Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to those who ask? If I, as a sinful, fallen human being, can keep my promises my daughter, as simple as catching some fireflies on a summer evening, certainly our righteous, sovereign, almighty, holy, heavenly Father can keep his promises to you. Unbelievers today, if you've not trusted in that Father through his Son, Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, today can be the day. And you say, what do I need to do? What do I need to bring? What do I need to contribute? Nothing. You simply hear the word that has been preached, receive it in your heart by faith, and let's talk about what that means. Believers, let us rejoice in the great salvation we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Our God and our Father, we love you. We thank you that you are almighty, you're sovereign, and you're infinite. And we bow before you today as humble receivers of what you have offered to us through Christ. And so we ask that as we've heard the word, we might now receive the word by faith. That unbelievers here today might be brought to saving faith in Jesus for the first time. And that those of us who have already believed might be strengthened and understand the joy of our salvation. That now, even on this side of salvation, it's still not up to us. But even our sanctification is a gift from your grace that we receive and pursue by faith and your power. And God, help us as believers who struggle, who undergo temptations and sins and suffering every day to rest in the fact that it is you who is holding on to us. Help us to look to you in faith, to trust your plan, to trust your will, because we see what you've done for us through your son, Jesus.
Help us to rejoice in that today, no matter what's going on around us or inside of us. Help us to rejoice in him who will hold us fast until the end. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.